leadership means constantly evolving to meet the moment. We are an organization that is not static. And I think no organization is ever static if you're doing it right. You are constantly evolving. And as leaders, we have to be comfortable with that evolution, right? We have to be comfortable with being in a constant state of change and evolution in our infrastructure, in our processes, in our funding streams, in our priorities. And so I want to create a culture where we have everybody in our team from uh, our legal director to our interns feeling as though they are a part of this transformational vision, that they are mission aligned with us, that they feel it in their hearts, that they get to live their values every single day. And that requires adaptability in the face of evolution, being bold and perhaps defiant in the face of injustice. And that's something that I try to instill in our staff every single day. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Sigal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Sigal Barnes. Our guest today is the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union of New Jersey. Under his leadership, the ACLU New Jersey has made significant strides in the New Jersey civil rights landscape, including the early release of over 6,000 people from New Jersey state prisons and jails, leading the successful fight to legalize cannabis through a racial justice lens, and passing legislation to ensure driver's licenses for all, regardless of immigration status. This is a lawyer who is a nationally recognized civil rights leader who has dedicated his career to advancing racial justice, holding institutions accountable, and promoting and defending rights and liberties. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads and fellow Cardozo alum, Amal Sinha. Amal, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So for all of our listeners, Amal and I actually went to law school together at Cardozo. We graduated together in 2010. Amal was actually one of my first friends. We met in a copyright law. Do you remember that? I do. It was, uh, we sat next to each other. That was great. We did. Yeah. And I'm so excited so many years later to be interviewing you today. And also we lost touch for a little while. So I get to learn a lot of what I've missed. And I have been watching them all in a non-creepy way from afar <laughs> and, um, and really been inspired by everything that he has been doing. Let's get into this interview. And I'm really excited to start. So um, what is your favorite thing that happened so far today? So far today. Oh, that's an interesting question. As you know, I am a new father. So I have a two and a half month old at home and I got to snuggle with her for um, 30 minutes or so this morning before I came into work. So that was my favorite thing so far. I love it. Early morning snuggles are the best. They're the absolutely the yeah. best. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. So let's get into your lawyer origin story. How did it all begin for you? Thanks for the question. I, you mentioned our copyright class and it triggered a memory for me, which is that when I went into law school, I thought that I was going to pursue intellectual property law. And that was something that was top of mind um, when we went to Cardozo. Cardozo is known for some of its intellectual property coursework and leadership. And that's what I thought I wanted to do because I saw it as novel and cutting edge, et cetera. It was that copyright class, actually, that either taught me or reminded me that copyright is actually embedded in the Constitution of the United States and that its framework is actually something that's centuries old. And the founding fathers anticipated intellectual property being an issue in our democracy. And so it was 
eye-opening to me, and it led me to take multiple constitutional law classes. I wouldn't recommend this to anybody, but I took four courses on the First Amendment alone and a whole number of civil rights litigation and other sorts of courses. Wow. So that copyright class was really the impetus to all of these other classes, which, although it does sound intense, it truly seemed to provide you with like a real foundation for your journey moving forward. It really was charting out a pathway that was narrowing over the course of my law school career, but really opening the door to a very rich career in constitutional rights and civil rights advocacy. So when I was in law school, I interned my first summer at Housing Court in Manhattan, which was, as you can imagine, a very tense and raucous environment, right? And when people go to housing court in this like landlord-tenant situation in Manhattan, the risk of losing one's home and their livelihood is very palpable, right? One of the things I learned in that first summer was that landlords are coming to housing court with representation, with an attorney, as they are entitled to, with an attorney almost 100% of the time. And tenants, on the other hand, are coming to housing court with an attorney almost never. So they're representing themselves. And if you have an hourly job or some sort of other strain on your life, because life is hard for many people, it sometimes may not be top of mind to show up in court at 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. on a weekday. And so oftentimes people were at risk of losing their homes and they didn't even know it or they were unable to have the wherewithal to show up to court to defend themselves and they didn't have representation. So they weren't even able to participate in the process by which they might lose their homes. And it got me thinking about systems, right? And the ways in which systems are sometimes designed to be stacked against the most vulnerable. And if our constitution and our democracy depends on the ideals of fairness and equity and equality, then the law should be a tool to at least try to achieve that. In my second summer of law school, I interned at ACLU National. And let me tell you, it was one of the most amazing experiences that I've had in my career. I was an intern in what was then called the National Legal Department. It housed the National Security Work, the First Amendment Project, and the Human Rights Project of ACLU. Can you give some examples of what working in those different areas meant in practice? So I was able to work on litigation that was stemming from atrocities at Guantanamo Bay or journalists being beaten up or other sorts of human rights violations that we were seeing happening across the country. And it was quite impactful for me, right? It sold me on this idea of impact litigation, on integrated advocacy, on using multiple tactics and tools, working across multiple issues to improve lives in pursuit of a more just society. And and that basically sold me on the organization. And it left me with this feeling that I wanted to be a part of the ACLU for my career. When I graduated, I was lucky enough to get a job at the NYCLU, which is New York Civil Liberties Union, which is the state affiliate of the ACLU in New York. And there I was running a chapter of the NYCLU out on Long Island, dealing mostly with immigrants' rights and criminal justice reform cases. I found very quickly that what I wanted was 
something more than a traditional career path. What do you mean by traditional career path? Can you expand on what that meant for you? By traditional, I mean, you know, in the public interest world, oftentimes public interest law is seen as one thing, which is public interest litigation, whether it's direct services or impact litigation. I saw litigation as one tool, but I wanted to make sure that whatever I did, I was able to use multiple tools. That includes legislative advocacy or policy shaping and and advocacy or strategic communications to make sure that we're shifting hearts and minds along the way. I wanted to combine all of those things into my career And the NYCLU really allowed me to do that because I had a tremendous amount of autonomy on Long Island working on these core fundamental rights issues, working in community, in partnership with advocacy organizations, and trying to advocate for change at the local level. And that was really powerful for me and really meaningful. Going back to my internship, I I recall having this... um, deep imposter syndrome when I was an intern at the ACLU National, because when I started this internship at ACLU, I was surrounded by students who were from the top of the top law schools. And and Cardozo is a great school, and I love that I went there. But there's a difference between Cardozo and Yale or Harvard. And there were folks who were in my internship cohort that were from all of those schools the vast majority of them were from these top institutions. And it was really eye-opening to me in a lot of ways that there is a premium placed on pedigree and it can leave folks like me with this sense of a lack of belonging. Tell me more about that. How, how did that actually manifest itself in your experience? Sure. Listen, I have no reason to believe that my work product was anything less than anybody else's, right? I have no reason to believe that I was turning in assignments that were not sufficient, but I was left feeling as though um, everything I turned in couldn't possibly compare to what these other students were turning in. And it really struck a chord with me and and it took me a long time to be able to feel a sense of self-confidence in this arena of law, right? And so that's one of the ways in which this imposter syndrome manifested and stuck with me. And so to this day, I carry that experience with me for the opportunity that it was, which was amazing, and also the lessons that it taught me and how I wanted to be a lawyer and a leader that disrupts the elitism that may be inherent in our industry and in the public interest field in particular. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And it is really fascinating to me because you would think in public interest, especially when you're talking about human rights, that there would be a culture or an environment in which um, people are more aware of that kind of dynamic. So it's important to point out that this is not something that just happens in law firms, right? This happens across the legal industry, and it's important to shed light on that. I think we're getting better at it. So we are at the ACLU and and many other progressive organizations. I know that there is much more awareness of the lack of diversity and belonging that folks may experience at an organization that is only selecting students from the top law schools or clerkships, et cetera. And I think we are now casting a broader net and realizing that there is richness to be had from increasing diversity and making sure that we're looking at all sorts of students, non-traditional students, people that have lived experiences with the criminal legal system, the immigration system, 
or a family law system or whatever it might be, they bring a texture and a nuance and an awareness of the work that people without those experiences simply cannot. And so it's important for multiple reasons, including creating the inclusive culture that we want and also advancing the work. 100%. I know that and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I know that you are also actively involved in the cannabis legislation that ended mm-hmm. up happening in New Jersey. There was a lot of injustice and inequality that was happening around arrests and, and imprisonment of people for these for just marijuana possession. Right. And so this mm-hmm. was a way to kind of help combat that. Can you talk more about that as well? Yeah, of, of course. Cannabis was a, a, a big thing for us. We were uh, involved in cannabis legalization in New Jersey in earnest since I would say 2013 or so predates my time with the ACLU in New Jersey. And my predecessor saw it that we would create a coalition of people, bring people together, including lawyers, doctors, law enforcement, religious leaders, lobbyists, etc., to come together and say, look, this is a matter of racial justice for us. As we have seen, Uh, In New Jersey and across the United States, Black folks are more than four times more likely to be arrested for cannabis possession than white folks, even though we know that Black folks and white folks use cannabis at at pretty much equal rates. And in New Jersey, we had been making over 30,000 such arrests per year. And so we were not only having a uh, disproportionate impact on communities of color in our state, we're also wasting like countless tax dollars on enforcement of something that most people across the United States and the vast majority of New Jerseyans thought should be legal. So we were thinking about it from multiple angles and we wanted to do a couple of things. One was we wanted to stop the tax waste, right? Make sure that we were using law enforcement dollars to the places that were actually harming public safety. And we wanted to undo the harms of the war on drugs. Perhaps most importantly, we wanted to make sure that the collateral consequences of a marijuana arrest no longer harm people's lives. If you could share quickly about collateral consequences of marijuana arrests, what does that mean? What does that look like? People who had marijuana arrests were unable to get student loans or they were unable to get public housing or they may have problems in custody or or adoption. It may be harder for them to get jobs like being a teacher or police officer. Uh, We thought that a marijuana arrest or a cannabis arrest should no longer have that devastating hold on somebody's life. And so we were able to articulate that in a couple of different arenas, including this coalition space that was designed to uh, pursue the legislation that ultimately passed, uh, but also through an electoral process where we ran um, the campaign for legalization on the ballot in New Jersey in 2020. What were the main things that you were talking about in this campaign? Like, what was the communication really focused on? We talked about all of the different things, right? We talked about expungements, making sure that we were expunging records of anybody that has a, a marijuana arrest in New Jersey. We talked about decriminalization, stopping the arrest from happening in the first place. And we talked about tax revenue as well. We talked about where the money should go once we legalize and create an industry. And for us, that meant creating an equitable industry where where, um, it's not just the multi-million dollar corporations that have a bite at the apple, but really local 
mom and pop folks and folks with criminal justice histories as well, people who have been incarcerated or otherwise been impacted by the unjust drug war that have the ability to retain and obtain licenses for dispensaries or other sorts of cannabis-related establishments. And we talked about tax revenue going to communities that need it the most. So this wasn't going to work if tax revenue was going to be collected and sit in some general fund in Trenton or go to law enforcement, which would just maybe perpetuate the problem that we saw in the first place, right? So what we needed to see was tax revenue going into communities and for communities to decide where the money should be going. Because a problem in a town like Patterson may not have the same priorities for tax revenue as a town like Trenton, right? So we want to make sure that these cities that have distinct populations and distinct issues that they're facing had the ability to decide where their money was being spent. And through legislation, we were able to get specific call-outs for where tax revenue was going to go, which communities were going to receive tax revenues, and how it would be decided that it would be spent. It's so fascinating to me how multifaceted something like this is. The tax implications, the ways in which small businesses can thrive, the expungements, the Mm -hmm. ability to dedicate resources and time to people so that they can one or two arrests for smoking a joint don't necessarily ruin the rest of their lives. Like these are things that are so important to understand that that this wasn't just a bill about, okay, now people can smoke pot, but this bill does not pass unless we are focusing on the most important things underlying it. So that's right. Thank you for sharing all of that. There was one other thing that you said that I want to make sure that we hit upon before we move on which is it was really important to you that you not only worked on the litigation aspects of what you do, but that also, and I'm going to quote you here, that you did a strategic communications that also changes the hearts and minds of people along the way. And as someone that works deeply with communications, I very much would love to hear how that is implemented and how you participate in that. You know, we at the ACLU see our work as what we call integrated advocacy, and that includes using all of our tools in our toolbox, whether it's litigation, policy advocacy, community organizing, or strategic communications in harmony with one another to achieve the transformational vision for the world that we want to see. I'll tell you a quick story, which is that at the start of the pandemic, when the world felt a mess, not only were we dealing with the impact of what it meant to work from home and how to like stabilize our organization, we were also thinking about what our value add was to the moment, right? How do we reprioritize our priorities so that we are actually contributing to the health and welfare of the public? And we realized very quickly that the population that most people were not thinking about, and perhaps were one of the populations that was most at risk, were incarcerated people. Incarcerated people in New Jersey, unfortunately, faced the worst rate of death as a result of COVID in the country. And we had more deaths in New Jersey than Massachusetts, New York, Connecticut, and Pennsylvania combined. And so some people might say, well, you were in the epicenter of of where it all started, but these other states didn't seem to have the same sort of numbers as we did. And so what we saw was perhaps this is somewhat bad luck, but also there was some degree of a lack of proactivity that led to this rate of death that we saw in New Jersey. And so we wanted to bring attention to this issue and then do something about it. 
And so we called on the governor and the legislature and the courts to start uh, thinking about ways in which we could uh, save people from the virus inside prisons and jails in New Jersey. And in the first week of our advocacy, we were able to get a court order that led to about 700 people being released from jails in New Jersey. And then ultimately, long story short, we were able to get an executive order from the governor that led to the release of perhaps a, a few hundred more people from prisons in New Jersey. And we were able to pass legislation that was hard fought and ultimately led to the release over the course of 2020 to 2022, approximately 9,000 people from our prisons in New Jersey. And I tell you all this because there's a story here, right? Like we had to make the case, not just to the lawmakers, but to the public that there was an urgency to the matter, right? That people were dying, that there was something to be done about it. And really the only thing that could be done about it was to reduce the population of our prisons and jails in our state. The only way to protect people from the virus was to reduce the population of prisons and jails in our states because prisons and jails were not designed with social distancing in mind. Like they were designed to warehouse people in close quarters. So the things that we could do on the outside to protect ourselves, like distance from people, mask, we use hand sanitizer. These were things that were not feasible inside prisons. And so the only way to curb the threat of the virus inside prisons and jails was to reduce the population and to make sure that people were freed so that they could properly self-isolate and that there would be a reduction of the population inside so that people could better protect themselves inside. And so we were able to do something that no other state has done Uh, which is we reduced the prison population in New Jersey between 2020 and 2022 by about 35%. And and so I say this because the the narrative change part of it was a key part of what we did, right? Like we were telling the story every step of the way to the public. We we, We told the story to, there were a few New York Times pieces that came out about our successes and during the pandemic. We talked about the trajectory of decarceration that our state has seen. And part of the narrative shifting work is, you know, getting this into the hearts and minds of the public at large. And it's also strategic to make sure that other states are seeing the fruits of our labor and trying to implement some of the same tactics that we were able to successfully implement in New Jersey. And so we want to make sure that the lessons that we're learning are being uh, shared with as many people as possible um, that we're using all the tools in our toolbox, including comms, right? We did a, a social media campaigns. We've done traditional press. We've done uh, new media. We've done videos, et cetera, so that the public can see that decarceration works. It does not have an impact on public safety. And in this moment, we had a success story about addressing both public health and public safety at the same time. What a great story. And that really kind of painted the picture. And when you were approaching the the release of all of these people, how did you approach who to release? We created a framework that said that if people were set to be released within a year anyways, they should have some time docked off of their sentence because it doesn't make sense for people who have completed X number of years of their sentence already to be incarcerated for an extended period of time simply because that's what their sentence said when they're facing the threat of the virus inside and they could 
perhaps save their lives by uh, being outside because nobody was sentenced to die in prison. Right. Like they weren't sentenced, if they're set to be released, they weren't sentenced to die in prison. They were sentenced to a term in prison. And so we were able to get uh, a lot of people out as a result of simply shortening their sentences. And it led to this massive drop in our prison population. When we started at the outset of the pandemic in March of 2020, I think we had about 19,000 people incarcerated. And when all was said and done at the end of 2022, we had about 12,500 people incarcerated. That's huge. Yeah. Well, Amal, I could really just talk to you for like another three <laughs> hours and maybe there could be a part two to this. But in the meantime, yeah. we got to get into our rapid fire questions. So based on everything that we've talked about so far, as well as all of your experiences over the years, what does leadership in law mean to you? Leadership means constantly evolving to meet the moment. We are an organization that is not static. And I think no organization is ever static if you're doing it right. You are constantly evolving. Advocacy orgs in particular are constantly evolving to meet the political climate and the urgency of what people and communities are experiencing. And as leaders, we have to be comfortable with that evolution, right? We have to be comfortable with being a in a constant state of change and evolution in our you know, infrastructure, in our processes, in our funding streams, in our priorities, and in our culture. And I think evolution doesn't necessarily mean instability, right? And in fact, it means good organizational health when you have evolution. And so I want to create a culture where we have everybody in our team from uh, our legal director to our interns feeling as though they are a part of this transformational vision, that they are mission aligned with us, that they feel it in their hearts, that they get to live their values every single day. And that requires ad adaptability in the face of evolution and being bold and perhaps defiant in the face of injustice. And that's something that I try to instill in our staff every single day. Another thing that comes to mind as I'm talking about leadership uh, I think there's power in community. The, the successes that we talked about, whether it's cannabis legalization or decarceration and so many more, none of it was done alone, right? Like none of it was just the ACLU or just, you know, our attorneys or anybody else doing it. It was a community-based effort with advocacy organizations, individuals, directly impacted community members, people who had lost their loved ones to COVID inside prison that were testifying on the issue. There is power in bringing people together, building consensus, and standing up together in the face of injustice. And to me, leadership means knowing when to be out front and leading in a moment, and also knowing when to step back and to let others lead. And I, I think about my wonderful team at the ACLU of New Jersey that steps up so often. And I also think about the platform that sometimes we are able to provide for community members and other advocacy organizations that may not have the resources that the ACLU does to be able to lead and show us what needs to be done in our state and in our country to achieve the world that we want to see. Beautifully put. What is something that other lawyers seem to misunderstand about the work you do? Litigation isn't everything. Of course, we have tremendously impactful litigation. And in fact, I'm very proud that we of ACLU of New Jersey appear before the Supreme Court of New Jersey more than any other non-governmental party. And we have a big litigation docket, but it's that integrated advocacy that makes change possible, right? And so oftentimes 
the law has to catch up with culture. And so using things like community organizing and strategic communications and and pursuing legislative change, impactful litigation, and all of the different sorts of narrative shifts that we want to see in the world, there is no one tool that's going to fix all of the problems in our society. And while litigation is incredibly important, I think sometimes lawyers have a narrow focus and we end up thinking in terms of the law and litigation and how to change the law. But I think there is power and something more to be gained when you think more broadly. And at the ACLU, I'm blessed to be a part of an organization that's truly multi-issue and multi-tactic. And we're able to think in terms of not just legal changes, but cultural changes as well. And, and that's truly liberating. I love that. Integrated advocacy. If there was one thing you could change about the legal industry, what would it be? I alluded to this before. I think we need to collectively disrupt the elitism in the legal industry. It remains to be a pretty status-based industry. And while there have been efforts to undo some of that and, and grapple with uh, some of the ways in which you know that mentality has harmed our industry and the people in it, I think we have a lot more work to do. There needs to be an acknowledgement that the rule of law in our history has been used more often to perpetuate injustice than to perpetuate justice. There are things in our history that the law has done, such as slavery, such as denying citizenship to Asian Americans, and so much more that was seen as perfectly legitimate under the law of the land in our history. And I think it's our responsibility as an industry to not just address the written law and make it better and more just as a society, but to also make sure that our industry is reflective of the injustices that we're trying to cure, right? And, and the justice that we want to seek. And so that to me means disrupting the elitism, not perpetuating white supremacy in our industry itself, and also practicing what we preach a little bit, right? Like if we are committed to the ideals of the constitution of of justice and equality for all, then we should be showing up in that way in our law firms, in our organizations, and every other space that we occupy. What is a piece of practical advice that you can give to our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders in law. One piece of practical advice is that relationships matter. Um, and having good relationships with your colleagues and everybody that you encounter is truly in some ways perhaps precedes the work itself, right? And it is really important to have meaningful and genuine relationships with the communities that you serve and the colleagues that you hold dear and the uh, other organizations or entities that you're working with on a regular basis, including your adversaries, right? And it's, it's incredibly important to be able to, with a straight face, approach every constituency that you serve with the same consistent message of, uh, of whatever it is that you're trying to do in the world. Final question. What do you do for self-care? As I said, I have a two and a half month old daughter at this point. And so much of my time has been consumed by caring for her and being there for her. And I have a wonderful wife who is there for her as well. So self-care right now is spending time with our little family and watching every moment of growth. It's happening with alarming speed. So I'm trying to be aware of the speed with which life moves and 
be as present as possible for her. I love that. Yeah. Well, congratulations again to you thank and your you family. Thank you so much. That's thank awesome. You. And thank you so much for being on the show. This was such a fantastic interview. I learned so much and it was so great to connect with you again. If anyone wanted to reach out and connect with you as well, what is the best way that they can do that? So I, I would say the best way to do that is to check out our website at aclu-nj.org. And you can also look at our national organization at aclu.org. And of course, follow us on all the social media platforms. Fantastic. Thank you so much again for being on the show. Thank you so much. Really appreciated it. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry, with almost five stars and over 1,000 verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers Who Lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.